1: focused on helping organizations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 127 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Bob Johansson on the show with us today. Bob is a sociologist focused on helping top leadership and shape-shifting organizations for the future. Bob is a distinguished fellow with the Institute for the Future in Silicon Valley. For more than 30 years, Bob has helped organizations around the world prepare for and shape the future. Bob is the author and co author of 13 books. His latest book, Office Shock, is focused on the future of the office, which has been accelerated by the recent pandemic. Let's get into the episode. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Great to be with you, Ben.
1: Yeah, appreciate it. Bob, what's your backstory? Like, what has led you down this path towards sociology? focused on the office for now and for the future?
0: Yeah. So I'm a humble futurist by background and by training. I've been doing this a long time. Uh, The Institute for the Future is the longest running futures think tank in the world. Now we started in 1968. So, you know, the first question you should always ask a futurist is have you outlived your forecasts? (laughs) And we have five times over. Now, I'm a sociologist by training, so my PhD is in sociology. I um, also have a background studying world religions and values and kind of the implications of religion on society. I'm not an advocate of any brand of religion. I'm a student of all of them. Um, but when I came to Silicon Valley, I got really interested in the sociological side of technology. So typically, I'm the resident social scientist on A project with engineers or with scientists and typically i'm looking 10 years out and thinking future back
1: yeah that's nice and you're based in such a part of the world for that forward thinking isn't like you look at what's come out of silicon valley over the last what a long time it's amazing
0: yeah silicon valley is still um the epicenter of a lot of the technology shocks that ripple around the world it certainly spread out from the early days of silicon valley which that term was coined in the 1970s so it's taken a while to, to get going but it's um it's a very exciting mix of people and the way i like to think of it and i you know i grew up with it the way i like to think of it is that it's a it's kind of a mix of People who wanna change the world and make the world a better place and people who are extremely greedy um, and I, I sound like I'm being negative, but I'm really not. If they weren't so greedy, Silicon Valley wouldn't work. But that tension between the change the world people and the greedy people, it creates an edge. And it's a very international edge. It's not a, it's not an American phenomenon. Indeed, most of the people, um, at least many of the people in the Valley are not even from the US. It's it's an international mix. And this tension between the change the world people and the make money people is just such an important part of the energy, the kind of sparkle, the uh, kind of passion and bite that reflects what the, val- the valley is all about.
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And so much of what our community does and our listeners do, Bob, you know, emanated from there to some degree with Agile yeah. and a lot of the expertise that happens there. It's like such a heartland of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, those are the techniques where people actually try to make sense out of the technology and and kind of direct it or control it. I think what, what the Silicon Valley energy is just about putting all this stuff out there and then it's up to the rest of us to figure out what to do with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly innovation is is such a key word of it, isn't it? Like we had for so long continuous improvement, which was about making what we've already got better. But this explosion of throwing stuff out there and learning from it and innovating innovation like that. That's the heart of it, isn't it? Like being willing to put something out there that's different and learn from it and go again. It's amazing. Bob, what, what, what led you to write the office shock? What led you down that path? This new book, which is on such a key topic. Like when I, (laughs) when I saw your book, I'm like, wow, you, you've nailed what's on everyone's mind right now.
0: So, we started writing it right about the time the COVID crisis broke out and the shutdowns and work from home and closing down of offices. And we had a conversation with a Swiss furniture company, USM, that makes modular, very energy efficient, very flexible office furniture. And their CEO, wanted to start a new conversation about offices. And and we got intrigued with that. And I ended up teaming up with an architect, Joseph Press, um, and an information scientist, Christine Bullen, to create this kind of grounding for the conversation. So in the book, we look 10 years ahead and we think future back about the future of offices. But we mean by that, not just office buildings, but officing. The ways in which we work and the office verse, which is this kind of archipelago of time and place and possibility that's gonna become possible as you think into the next decade. We also looked 50 years back because one of the big lessons of us is from futurists is that almost nothing, almost nothing happens that's truly new. Almost everything that happens was tried and failed years before. So luckily, we had 50 years of prototyping media like this. We're using Zoom right now. Zoom didn't just happen. (laughs) Zoom, the video conferencing phenomena, began in the late 70s and early 80s. And most of those efforts failed. But they failed in an interesting way. And fortunately, Zoom and Teams and WebEx and the like, they were ready when the shutdown happened and we were able to work in distributed ways much better than if none of this had started before. So what we decided to do was to not predict the future, nobody can do that, but to look future back and figure out what are what we ended up calling the spectrums of choice, the spectrums of choice. So our job as futurists is to look at those underlying big waves of change, and then provoke people's insights, provoke people's actions to give them a future back view, to help them make better choices in the present. And those seven spectrums of choice, those are the basics.
1: It's it's impressive by what you're saying, that empiricism, you know, there is an empirical history of, you know, things being tried in these futuristic elements. And You know, my mind's racing on so many different examples of it. But you can learn from that to then look to the future. That's 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 insightful. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, with- yeah, it's it's um, you know everybody thinks that the question is what's new, uh, and the question is usually not what's new because if it's truly new, it's almost certainly not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> so yeah. we always like to look ten years ahead and then fifty years back. So mm. it's basically a sixty-year swath of time that we're thinking within.
1: Yeah, and through that you find trends and information on what has been, and you can use right. that to provide insight for the future. Interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm. So that's that's right. And you know, trends are interesting. So trends are patterns of change you can extrapolate from with confidence. Um, we're more focused on disruptions which are breaks in the pattern of change. Um, so you can look at things like demography, that's a trend. The what we call the digital natives or the cross-reality natives, you know, those that are 27 or less or 16 or less, they're disruptions, you know, they're breaks in the pattern of change. So they're not so much trends as they are disruptions. And you have to treat them differently. That's where future back thinking comes in. If you're dealing with a trend, that's kind of the easy part because all you have to do is look at the history and extrapolate.
1: Yeah, I got you. There's So you're really seeing the odd little event in the past of something being tried and then predicting this is, you know, this is what could come for the future. Like, But what, what are those elements in Future Shock that you write about that senior leaders need to consider upcoming with the future? We're part of now, but that's flying at us rapidly.
0: Sure. So now, right now, the conversation often focuses on when are we going to go back to the office? You know, when are we going to go back to the office? And we say, yeah, that's a good question. But for us, it's number six out of seven. And the first question is always, why an office at all? So it's really, what's the purpose? And there are good answers to that question. I'm not against offices, I'm just saying it should be a question asked why an office, rather than an assumption made,
1: mm-hmm. we're
0: going to go back to the office. So these seven spectrums, and we can talk about each of them individually, they begin with purpose. Then we go to outcomes. And, and we think these are in order. They, you have to begin with purpose. So purpose and then outcomes. Why? What, what are the results you're seeking? So purpose is about intent. Outcomes is about results. And we are influenced a lot in the book by... The work of the economist Mariana Mazzucato in Europe. And what she argues is you have to think across a spectrum from shareholder value to stakeholder value. So it's think about it as profits to prosperity. <laughs> and where do you want your office to be focused? And it's not a binary choice. It's a spectrum. Then as futurists, we can't help but point out that climate is the looming outcome that we all have to be concerned about. And the spectrum there is from net zero to regenerative. Then we ask the question of belonging. How do you create a climate of belonging? And future back, it's obvious we're going to have a more diverse workforce. And we've got to create ways to create a sense of belonging, a sense of inclusion, even a sense of equity in a world that's going to be increasingly distributed then we ask the question, the spectrum, what we call augmentation, the spectrum of augmentation. And over the next decade, it's going to be an amazing decade in terms of the augmentation of human intelligence. So finally, what some call artificial intelligence, I don't think that's a very good term, uh, what some call artificial intelligence is going to get practical And we call it augmented intelligence. And, you know, Chat GPT just came out as our book was coming out. We used a predecessor to that, GPT 3, to write that chapter just to demonstrate what augmented writing will look like. And, you know, I write books. So if I'm going to be writing big league books 10 years from now, I'm going to have to be augmented. (laughs) So we're all going to have to be augmented. We're all going to be cyborgs 10 years from now. But the question is, what can humans do best and what do we want to keep for ourselves and where do we want to be augmented? Then we get to the question of time and place. And the spectrum here is from office buildings to what we're calling the office verse, that anytime, anyplace collection, that metaverse of work, if you will. And finally, we ask the question, which is actually quite linked to your work about agile and about agility. How do you hold it all together? What are the ways of staying coordinated staying in sync and you know if you think future back all of us who are leaders we're all going to have to be corporate athletes we're also all going to have to be physically mentally and even spiritually fit not necessarily religiously but spiritually grounded in the face of all this uncertainty in the face of you know what the army war college calls the vuca world with all this this uncertainty so those are the seven spectrums purpose outcomes climate um, then, then think about belonging, augmentation, time and place and agility.
1: It's, it's great questions, but I'm not going to see by asking these, you're really going to be starting to challenge yourself and think about the future. But with why in office, what, what have you seen some of your clients or people come to a conclusion here? Like, like you said, it can be very depending on the organization and all sorts of factors, but. What have you seen playing out here with why an office
0: sure um so there's good reasons to have an office or to meet in person and the reasons are orientation essentially asking you know why am i here Um, who are you Um, it's orientation trust building Um, then um, early stage creativity uh, renewal and developing corporate culture so I was talking with the CEO of a large Midwestern firm uh, just last week, and and he asked me the same question you ask, and I gave him the same answer. And he looked around his office. He was in his office at the time. He looked around and he said, Bob, my office isn't very good for any of those things. (laughs) It it isn't very good at orientation. It isn't very good at trust building. Um, Food is an important part of orientation and trust building. His cafeteria was closed because there weren't enough people there. Um, And he said, all I've got is these people sitting in their offices with their doors closed doing Zoom meetings. (laughs) Now, that's not a good reason to come back to the office. (laughs) So we've got to ask ourselves why, you know, what is the purpose of the office? And if it is, which I think it should be, orientation, trust building, renewal, culture building, early stage creativity, we ought to have offices designed for that. Yeah. So that's why I co-authored the book with an architect. And Joseph writes in our book, An Office Shock, about the history of office buildings. And the history isn't very pretty. I mean, office buildings were kind of designed for efficiency and designed to look like factories. And, you know, gradually some of the modern offices, like in Silicon Valley, say at Google, they're a lot more fun and, and a lot more fitting of the kind of purposes they should be. But most offices aren't. Um, so that's the first realization is you go back to the office and you say, wait a minute, that's not that's not why we want to be here. So yeah. that's creating, um, you know people called it in the early days the great resignation and then the great reset and the latest term is quiet quitting. you know we we call it the great opportunity, but you've got to view it as a strategic opportunity. It isn't just an operational choice. Because the old-fashioned office wasn't very good to begin with. In many cases, we can do better now. We've got this opportunity to rethink it and and do better than we did before.
1: Yeah, I think Bob, the the old saying that you know people leave leaders or leave that leave due to a conflict with people around the organization or something that's not right for them. Plus, you know, purpose and direction is still so at large, isn't it? And I see it with organizations that I work with. But what you yes. said was quite, was amazing that, you know, the office is about that culture, that connection, that early innovation, that trust building. There's a con- there's a pattern in Agile where, where I work, which is called quantum entanglement. And it's that humans <laughs> yeah. can break out and be disconnected for a long period of time, just like, you know, quantum particles. But they need to come back together to re-sync and build that trust and refocus and align. And then you can split again for a while and it's really effective. And I love that term quantum entanglement because it just, to me. I do too.
0: I I do too. We've used that quite a lot in Silicon Valley and that's how creativity happens. And to me, that's the way I imagine the office verse. Um, we didn't use the word metaverse because it's been, there's attempts in Silicon Valley now to try to commercialize it and even brand it. I, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, and there's, it's being over-promised right now, but office verse is that of quantum entanglement of ideas and people and places and processes and you know that's really the way work should happen and the office building is a piece of that but it's got to be linked in it's got to be blended in and the purpose has to be very clear and then the ways in which you achieve that purpose that can happen in messy ways in ways that bring about that kind of quantum entanglement
1: yeah that's neat well on the second element you had, what what results or outcomes? And I, I can understand this, um but do you mind just describing like, are, are you seeing any outcomes out there other than just, you know, make money, profit, growth, those types of things? What other outcomes are you seeing with some yes. of the organizations?
0: We are. Uh, there's a, a big project at the Institute now. You can see it on our website and maybe at the end of this, we can put a link to the Institute's website. We're an independent nonprofit, so most of our things get published whenever they can. And in that case, we've got a big project underway called the Equitable Enterprise, which is rethinking the basics of corporations and the basic of organizations. And instead of just thinking, how do we prepare people, how do we train people for jobs? we're raising the question about how you, how can we create more equitable organizations and equitable jobs what are the different models and our our language kind of locks us in to thinking about certain ways about companies and you know some of the traditional economics was focused on well it's all about shareholder value and nothing else what muzakata argues is no no it's not only about shareholder value it's also about stakeholder value and there are different models you know cooperatives may be the biggest uh, example but those aren't well understood and the information's not well shared but there's many different models for how organizations might be structured and if we think future back the challenge is not only to produce revenue produce profits for the shareholders the goal is to have a positive impact on communities too and give people a sense of purpose. So we we know from the literature that purpose-driven people are happier, they're healthier, they live longer. We know that purpose-driven companies perform better. So why not do it? You know, yeah. what why not explore those models? And what we're doing on our project is just trying to develop, provoke a new conversation about different organizational models that. Can create more of a climate of equity that isn't just about shareholder value.
1: Yeah, Bob, I, I I can vouch for that. If I I put a lot of time into young up and coming leaders too, and and people mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time with them, and the amount of time I've heard one of them say to me, "Rad, I think I'm going to move over here to this organization because you know it's got a better purpose. Like we really have uh-huh. lost our way with." No, what are we doing? You know, um, they're working in aged care, or, you know, they're really helping the elderly, or they're doing this work for the planet. Um, I'm going to move. It's like a yeah. magnet that's drawing people towards exactly. it. But I I do find that a lot of senior leadership still aren't connected with the power of purpose or that meaningful vision. You know, they and cascading it so that people can align to it and actually create mm-hmm. their own way. It's um. I agree with you totally, rocket fuel, but enabling it to be a focus. Go to enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to get hold of some additional resources and links Bob has kindly provided to help us all enhance our learning in this area, this very important topic. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. Let's get back to the episode. Bob, on, on, um, on your mentioned stakeholders, with stakeholders, please correct me if I'm wrong, you're mentioning like customers, employees, all those people in that community around the organization and that greater outcome for them.
0: That's right. And so it could be uh, like a town or a city or a state, like a governmental agency. Um, it, it could be a group of people, like parents or you know, kids or some population that uh, could be a stakeholder. Um, so it's just really asking the question of how do our products, how do our services affect others? And what are the impacts? And we talk a lot in the book about the circular economy. You know, yeah. we we used to think about linear economies where, you know, you produce product and you sold it and you made money and you forget about it. Now you produce product, you sell it, you make money, and you think about how to recycle it or how to reintroduce it or how to at least balance the effects and balance production and consumption. And thinking future back. Um, we don't have much time to get that balance right. And it's quite out of balance now. Um, the good news during COVID that I found really optimistic is more and more companies are facing up to this. Um, the disappointing part is that governments aren't doing very well at all. So so they talk a lot, but the action hasn't been very good. So uh, during COVID, I've been more impressed with companies, but less impressed with governments. And they're so polarized now that they can't seem to get it together, even around what is to me an obvious issue around climate.
1: Well, especially when, like you're saying, in Australia too, it's the, the top tier organizations okay. that are driving the change, you know, and and yep. yes, um, Greenpeace is in there working with them hard. And a lot of key social organizations are in there with the CEOs and the C suite of these companies, helping them but the government's not at the table which is unbelievable isn't it you've got a willing market that is going it's like you know the these top tier organizations and the social enterprises helping them not fighting with them anymore like collaborating and um yeah the the government's really late to the table at least in our countries i guess so it seems to be getting a bit better in australia now but um,
0: I hope so. I hope so. And you can see, certainly in Australia and and now in the United States, the impact of climate is is not tomorrow or ten years from now. It's now. You can see the immediate impact.
1: Yeah, I just think, in essence, too, Bob, the that piece of climate you've mentioned here in your book, just the the future we develop for our kids is or don't develop for our kids is so amazing, isn't it? Like right. it can be a lot worse or it can be a lot better or, or maybe we exactly. could hold equilibrium you know and exactly. i think um i do a lot of trekking with my boy and you know get into some amazing right. wilderness areas and right you know you, you want them to be there if not more don't you
0: exactly exactly and then and then again a future back view makes that obvious and and i hope that we're gonna face up to that as one of the one of the opportunities we have now we it, we can work better we can work smarter we can work in a way that's more regenerative than what we have in the past
1: yeah and with with the you know with what you're writing about with office shock and that future of augmented you know type outcomes you don't have to drive as much you don't have to fly as much you don't have to, there's all this reduction in impact that is huge So when you said that it was just a logical, trigger on my mind of yes there's a massive outcome for climate and if we think climate it's like well there's some really strong thoughts to put in there
0: that's right that's right and and the neat thing about looking 50 years back is you can see how we've had technology that's been in development for more than 50 years actually the term artificial intelligence was coined more than 65 years ago so very old term um and now it's finally getting practical, and it's very interesting. Just on November thirtieth, chat, GP, chat GPT was released by OpenAI, um, and it really interesting how popular it's become. I'm sure many of your listeners have already tried it, and if you haven't, try it. Uh, it's basically a um, very large uh, language model that you can chat with. You can ask questions of it, can do draft writing for you, and Um, around institute for the future we're trying it out all the time because it's it's pretty clear that what we do as futurists um, can be done in some ways by these forms of augmented intelligence now it has real limitations but if you assume future back you know all futurists will be augmented or they they won't be in the game (laughs) it's just going to be a price of entry but there'll still be things that humans can do better and the technology. So, you know, Tom Malone, the guy who wrote the book called Superminds, he said the big story over the next decade is not computers replacing people, although that will happen in limited ways. The big story is humans and computers doing things that have never been done before. That That's augmentation.
1: Yeah. I was even just sent uh, a simple um, app yesterday from a person I know on just Microsoft Power was it power automation and i was like wow that's because i'm in process improvement you know and you you look at these little triggers you can easily rapidly get flow with a process by just having a trigger or some sort of logic event rather than the human having to do it it's a massive outcome for customers and for for people but i'm definitely going to check out that that it I can mean. be
0: I'm I'm cautious about the word automation mm. uh, for the same reason I'm cautious about the word artificial intelligence um it's it's not about replacement it's not about automating although some of that will happen in limited ways the big story is about augmentation it's about how do you take those things that humans do best and amplify them and move into spaces that we don't do well uh, and those are the things that should be, Automated, but again, I'm very cautious about that term, you know, in the early days of um, office systems and officing and before it was called the office first, this field was called office automation, Mm -hmm. office automation. And it's, it really, really wasn't automation. It was augmentation that was in the process of happening.
1: And it's, it's the same like Bob, what you're saying, like automation has that historic connotation that we're going to replace people. But mm-hmm. in reality, even on a factory floor, it's been about there's the, the humans have altered jobs to work in partnership with the automation because the automation needs care and service and these machines need sure us does. to work in partnership with them. It's not just that. It sure does. It totally yeah, Now, there may be
0: a net reduction in humans, just like I think there will be a net reduction in uh, offices, office buildings, but there'll also be new opportunities for humans to think how can they be? augmented and how can they create create new roles that yeah. are better than what you had before and th- that's not predetermined
1: but there's the other factor bob i'd be keen this is off topic but you're a futurist so it's on topic <laughs> we've got the we've got a massive reduction a crunch on labor at the moment and it's not going to slow up if you look forward in my mind but please correct me if you you see me as wrong like it seems like there's going to be a decline, in many many countries on access to labor and resource, and that augmented approach is uh, seems really critical right now. Please, your thoughts on that? Either way,
0: uh, I think that's definitely right. Um, the the labor force question it has lots of uncertainty baked into it, uh, but certainly there's going to be areas where labor force is going to be a giant issue. So take Japan, it's it's a very, the demography of it is a much older society um, and creates a need for people to work longer. It creates a need for care for the elderly. And there's a a role for augmentation. So we did a study a few years back on the future of the construction worker. And Japan was way ahead of any other country in developing exoskeletons for construction workers. And they're basically things you can put on that help your posture and help your strength, but they also make it so you can work longer. Um, So to me, that's an example of augmentation. It's a physical augmentation that helps extend the the labor force that you already have. So there will be cases for the automation of some labor. There will be more occasions for the augmentation of human labor, and that can, Create a more robust workforce than what what we had what we had before.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking, Bob, of that Japanese term judoka, which is about, you know, yeah. error proofing and working in performance and quality and machine performance in partnership, machine and person. You know, that's it's yep. it's a massive Definitely. well, it's it's what's happened. But I want to backtrack just a second to belonging, because I think this is really important. Like if I think of most people I talk to about remote work and elements like that it it links to really it links back to belonging and that human connection which is what what you link back to why an office in the first place like these two are connected aren't they but do you mind explaining yep. explaining belonging a bit sure. more and then that um, diversity aspect you spoke about too
0: sure so the question here on this spectrum the spectrum of belonging the question here is with whom do you want to office with whom do you want to work? And if you look at traditional offices, kind of old-fashioned offices, if you walk inside them, everybody looks alike. You know, they they dress alike, they talk alike, they behave alike. And the the old offices were designed for familiarity. Uh, and there's advantages to familiarity. I'm not not against it. I mean, you can, if you have familiarity, you have a common language, you can get things done faster. So yeah, there's some advantages to it. But if you think future back, the world is getting more diverse. Uh, It's getting radically more diverse. So minority, majority societies are becoming much more common. California is already there. So if you're moving into a world where racial differences, ethnic differences, gender differences are actually increasing and we're becoming increasingly distributed, how do you design your offices, your officing, your office verse, how do you design to be more inclusive, to create a sense of belonging, to design for diversity, essentially, because we're gonna have a more diverse world whether we want it or not. (laughs) So the challenge here, this spectrum of choices, how do you design for familiarity? Do Do you design for difference? And there's no yes or no on this, except that future back, increasing diversity is gonna be inevitable. So we're all gonna have to design to be accepting of differences. And go back to what I said earlier about in-person, if in-person is better for orientation, for trust building and renewal, how do you build that into your distributed work? And there are ways to do it, to create a sense of belonging in a distributed way, but you have to think it through. You have to design carefully to, support those those cultural differences. Now, companies that have a strong corporate culture, they're gonna have a competitive advantage because even though they're physically different, there'll be values that they share in common and purpose that they share in common. And that makes it a lot different. If you think back to uh, way before media, um, think back to the Jesuits and the Jesuit sects of the Catholic faith you know, they were very distributed global organization, no communications media, but the Jesuits pretty much did the same thing no matter where they were. Now, it wasn't always the right thing. <laughs> there, I have some questions about their behavior at times, but, but they were very consistent because they had a very strong corporate culture and spiritual culture and discipline. Companies that have a strong promote from within we work a lot with procter and gamble um unilever is big and in, in australia procter and gamble is pretty big um those those um those kind of companies will have an advantage because they have shared values even if you're not in the same room to and
1: they're purpose-led They actively promote we're purpose-led don't they both those companies
0: yeah they well, they do, and it's interesting. Just this last year, Unilever agreed to uh, a four-day work week. You know, they tested it in New Zealand, and now they've implemented it in Australia. The way I understand it, so if you're if you're only in the office four days, um, and yet you're expected to work, get the same amount of work done, you're going to have to do some virtual work all the time, and everybody has to do it, and it's got to be coordinated as you're saying it's got to have those kind of agile characteristics the lean characteristics that assure consistency of direction
1: i I only bob on that funny enough i had a a colleague a a peer of mine from canada reach out and connect me with someone from unilever just last night which is daytime your time of course Uh And, and um he said look she's just becoming an agile coach and can you help her and um you know, I know you've got this community going and what you do. And I'm like, okay, Union Leavers yeah. is on that path. So yeah, it,
0: yeah, really definitely. And I think distributed work is going to require more of that because yeah. you're going to have to have those disciplines.
1: Yeah. And those, I love the word too, with it, the, the drum beats to be able to work coordinated externally, you've got to have these rhythms going. Cause if you don't have these yes. rhythms going, it's very hard to link in together when you're not physically together. So that's right. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing. Bob, i got a question on time and place. Like, what, what do you mean by time and place?
0: So the spectrum here is from office buildings to the office verse. So the office verse is anytime, any place mixes. The office building is exclusively working in a building, in a place, same time, same place. Um, so the spectrum increases Increasingly now, I think you're going to see fewer office buildings and more remote work. It's And it's not going to be a sort of straight linear change pattern. It's going to be a mixed uh, change pattern of kind of hybrid work as people practice and experiment. But it's not going to be an easy, simple choice, uh, even though I think a lot of executives are falling into the trap of saying, I want people back in the office. You know, I'm doing hybrid work and I'm done thinking about this. Um, that's not going to work. It's going to take five to 10 years for this to shake out. And while there is a general trend from buildings to virtual, um, it's going to be a very nonlinear, messy process along the way to figure out how your organization can do it best.
1: A lot of experimentation, a lot of experimentation and learning, which I guess Bob leads us on to Agile um, to pull it all together or how to pull it all together what was your learnings in the studies that you've done on this topic of agile as part of this you know office of the future the futureverse
0: yeah yeah so stable structures are one end of the spectrum here and shape shifting structures are the other stable structures work fine in stable times but we're not in stable times <laughs> so you need to have shape shifting and i i think of shape shifting as Imagine a fishnet on a dock, and you pick up one node. A temporary hierarchy forms. You put that node down, pick up another node, another hierarchy forms. So you still have hierarchies, but they're much more flexible, and and they respond to the situation. They tend to grow from the edges, uh, and there's no obvious center, even though you do have hierarchies that come to go, come and go. So they're much more shape shifting, and that's going to be more the successful organizational structure that demonstrates more agility, more ability to respond. And the the rule of thumb, we actually learn a lot here from the military, from fire services, from police services, uh, from emergency rooms and hospitals. And the way they work in general is they have great clarity of direction, but great flexibility of execution. So if you're in an emergency room it's all about saving the patient's life but the nurse or somebody else may move in at different times depending on what's happening right at the time it isn't always a lead doctor who's telling people what to do it's you have to respond based on the the crisis at at hand yeah. so that's what i mean by agility it's it's not it's more shape shifting agility um, not just linear push through kind of gentle agility.
1: Yeah. That and I love you mentioned there that you need that clear vision or goal or that key of clear objective, whatever you want to call it, and right. reason for it. And then from there it comes down to that ability to adapt and flex to exactly achieve that vision. And outcome. exactly
0: and, and the military, this is called commander's intent. Or mission command. Yeah. Or my favorite term is flexive command. And in the book we talk about flexive intent. But flexive command is basically redeciding who's in the best position to make which decision at what time based on your situation analysis, your reading of the situation and what needs to happen, and your reading on after action reviews, what has worked in the past and what what hasn't. So I, I like that term flexive intent. To yeah. have that clarity of direction, but, but flexibility of how you actually execute.
1: Well, I was just, um, I interviewed prior to Christmas Chet Richards who worked with John Boyd and um, from that military background, you know, and then right. I think back to all the, I've read a lot on the SAS and Delta Force and it's, it's such, there's so many examples of it, isn't it? But again, that's a VUCA world, isn't it? It's necessity that you yeah, know the vision, you know the outcome, but how you get there and who's going to play a key part as you go there. That's
0: right. That's right. And that's where the VUCO term comes from. It's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I'm not a military guy by background, but I happened to be at the graduate school for the U.S. Army the week before 9-11. And I've started bringing executives groups there and now I've been brought in and I now teach the new three-star generals on their first week in Washington. And it's been truly remarkable to learn from them. And I've, I've kind of flipped that VUCA in a, in a positive way. And what I've said is, if you look future back, you realize that volatility yields to vision, So visionary leadership will get disproportionately rewarded. Uncertainty yields to understanding. So this is a time to be listening, not shouting at each other. Complexity yields to clarity, and the way I say it is: you want to be very clear where you're going, very flexible how you get there, and finally, ambiguity yields to agility. So you—that's where we all need to be athletes. We all need to have that ability to be agile, to be grounded in in ways that when we can't predict what's happening on the outside.
1: Yeah, that. And being willing to, I guess, experiment. You know, as you talk, I just think of that you know, the PDCA cycle, being really willing to have right. that. And I guess safety comes into it too, doesn't it? Because if you don't feel safe yeah. in your organization to do that, well, yeah. that's, there's no way that's going to happen, is it? Yeah. So
0: so we think of it as foresight, insight, action. Oh. Uh, so the foresight is thinking future back. What are those external ways that change? What's the insight? What's the aha? And then what's the action that comes out of it? Um, so in the military, there's also a a, a a loop that they talk about. I'm trying to OODA loop or something. But anyway, there's different acronyms and different loops, but it all comes down to a loop where yeah. it's basically foresight, inside action, and they're all very similar in that regard.
1: Yeah. What is it? The OODA loop is, uh, and I might get this wrong, um, observe, orientate, decide, act. You know, yeah. it's all that. It's all that see something, learn something, think, go. Exactly. See something, learn something, think, go. You know, or
0: exactly. It's it's not rocket science. It's just, but it's discipline. It's yeah. it's discipline in thinking.
1: Yeah, Well, That's that's amazing. I guess that's the at the heart of our conversation. But what I love to it is the structure that you brought to it for thinking about the future. I think this episode is really going to help a lot of leaders sit down Good. and go through these seven seven questions, really, and seven ways of thinking to actually, you know, think about what we're going to do. Bob, what would yeah, be... Yeah,
0: actually, we actually put, have a kind of tear-out sheet that is kind of a guide, a sort of quick-start guide to how to do this, and we've designed it like a music mixing board oh. where you can slide the scales up and down. That's so So awesome. it came out in paperback right away, and it has that little insert. On our website, officeshot.org, you can also get those same graphics and can download them too.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Bob. But what would be your uh, two-minute tip, an enterprise excellence two-minute tip based on your book and the work you're doing right now for the future to a leader who's trying to start to navigate that?
0: Yeah. So my clear takeaway in this one is um, view it as an opportunity uh, as well as a threat. And it's a strategic opportunity not just a set of operational challenges. So these are decisions that should be made at the C-suite level and your board should be involved. It isn't just the head of real estate. It isn't just the head of HR. It isn't just the head of digital. It's those three functions in particular, but it's really a strategic decision. And Go through these seven sections of choice. Decide on your purpose. Why in an office at all? What are your outcome priorities? How do you create a sense of belonging? How do you want to engage with this opportunity for augmentation? How do you want to design how you work? So it's the how, when, where, and even why you work. And what are the options you're going to give to people? And then how do you put together an agile structure that is responsive? So your traditional org chats are very hierarchical and rigid, Um, 10 years from now, they're all going to look like fishnets and they're all going to be very flexible Mm. and they'll be in some kind of virtual medium. So we're going to have to design for diversity, design for flexibility, design to thrive in the VUCA world.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Now, Bob, this, this question slightly seems irrelevant for you with all the insights and thinking you do about the future, but what's been the biggest recent insight for you? I should say.
0: Um I guess the, the biggest insight to me just right recently and I you know the book officially went on sale last Tuesday and for the just since the first of the year I've been talking with CEOs every day and C-suite members every day the surprising thing to me is how it's hard for them to grasp that this is a strategic opportunity um, there's just so much pressure to get back to the way it was. And, and there's other things looming, like the recession and uh, the war in the Ukraine. And there's, there's other things challenging us, climate disruption. So there's other reasons. But the surprising thing and the disappointing thing to me is that people are missing the fact that this is a historic opportunity. Uh, now, it is a threat. And there are operational challenges, but it's also a just a tremendous opportunity. And and to me, it's just surprising that more people aren't getting that. I hope our book makes a difference and there's going to be many more soon.
1: Yeah, I think well, there's that natural inertia for us to go back to habit, isn't it? And um definitely. Like you said, the pandemic is a massive shock to break habit. And it's do we use it to gain make gains like Procter Gamble and Unilever? Or do right. we just go back to what we've always done, which is right. there is a massive force on that as a human. So
0: exactly, there sure is, there sure is. <laughs>
1: it's like I, I see it every day too. I guess it's part of being, you know, trying to really help organizations and move forward and and work either of those loops we spoke about: PDCA loop and the loop you mentioned, the OODA loop. It requires Definitely. change. Um, so it's a it's a million dollar question, Bob. How do people get hold of the book? and reach out to you if they want to learn more and, and, and gain some help.
0: Sure. Well, um, we'll put on, I'll, I'll send you some slides here that summarize it, but the Institute's website is just I F T F as an in Institute for the future. iftf.org O R G. And the book website is office shock dot O R G. And, and we'll give your listeners a, a discount through our publisher at a link that we'll, we'll send
1: Thanks so much, Bob. Really appreciate it. Well, Bob, thank you for everything you have done and you continue to do. And thanks for sharing your knowledge and helping us create a better future, mate. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thanks for all you're doing. Cheers, Bob. Take care, Brad.
1: Organizations that are progressing in agile capabilities are in such a great place to navigate and succeed in the future. We're all at different levels of organization agility. Survival of the fittest, most adaptable, applies to organizations as much as it does to nature. For those organizations that are looking to enhance their agility for the future, the Enterprise Excellence Academy is running a series of agile capability building events, both in-person and virtually. These events are highly practical. Build your capability in applying the learning instantly. They are certified by the Agile Education Program, Jeff Sutherland, one of the founders of Scrum and Agile, his organization. And they're also industry and role agnostic. Covers across every industry, every role. The events allow people from any industry and organization to learn, build capability, and enhance agility. We already work with organizations from government, health, manufacturing, mining, refining, supply chain, and many more. To learn more about these events, go to Enterprise Excellence Academy or podcast.com or reach out. There were two key takeaways for me from this episode. Meaningful vision and goals with adaptability to get there. If I had a dollar for every time one of our world's experts mentioned this aspect is important, I would be a wealthy person. It is important that meaningful vision, purpose mission, and goals are highly relevant and aligned throughout the whole organization. A friend of mine just got back from a week at Harvard learning and spending time to develop and brought back with them a great concept, a great acronym for this. It is that an organization needs to be aligned north, south, and east, west. What this means is that vision and mission and goals need to be cascaded in a way that helps teams from the front line of the organization, north to south, to align with the top with their own version of the vision, mission, and goals. That may be different in wording and measures when you look at front line compared to the top, but they are aligned north to south. The east to west means that a traditional organizational structure, or an agile one, or a matrix style, again needs to have thinking and measures and focus that is aligned to ultimately customers, both internal and external, but also suppliers. And what this creates is this focus on the total community, like Bob mentioned, and improvement for that community that ultimately create flow of value and innovation. You know, if the whole value stream or the whole inputs and outputs of an organization and those within it are working to improve for each other, you will ultimately get greater flow of day-to-day value and improvement, but also innovation. The second key takeaway for me was Bob's section of choice on climate when thinking about the office first. Logically, with virtual work, the environmental impact is reduced. Transportation, the carbon footprint of buildings, road infrastructure, car parks, you name it, they're massive. By reducing the amount of travel, office space requirements, road repair, car parks and so much more, ultimately climate impact is reduced and we create a better future. Thanks again for everything you have done and continue to do, Bob. Thanks for helping us create a better future. Bye for now.